This morning, what I am uh, continuing, having started last week, is the second message in a series of, I don't know how long it will go, I never do, laughter. But it fits coincidentally just perfectly with the theme, especially of our last song that we sang about freedom. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Galatia. It says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, admittedly, in the context, which I am fairly fanatical about, in rightly dividing the word of truth, Paul was not writing expressly about finances, about money. But he was absolutely appropriately talking about the freedom in Christ of life in general, which certainly includes that. And his desire for the Galatians and for Christians everywhere is to whatever shackles they are that happen to bind us, that keep us from pursuing God in the fullness, that they be dropped through the power of Christ to find that freedom is here at the cross. Now, For you who might be new today, or at least newer to the church, and especially if you didn't hear last week's message, this is the second time in 27 years that I will have taught on this subject. The last time was 10 years ago, and the time before that was 15 years ago. I say that because as soon as you mention money, people start twitching and getting all weird about it. And if you're new to this church and you don't know the heartbeat of this church, Satan is always alive and well to throw in those distracting thoughts and accusations and everything else. And go, see, you know, I finally get up the courage to go into a church. And what are they talking about? Money? Because the only the only thing they're after is your wallet and your purse. Could not be farther from the truth of this place. You just happen to be fortunate enough to come in at this time. And I'm not even saying that with any sarcasm whatsoever. Because you will see if you stick around for the entire message, and I implore you to listen to last week's message if you missed it, and any messages that you may miss from this point on, because God intends this to be a place of freedom. Last week I mentioned that money can bring out the worst in people. Even people who are pretty good good people by earthly standards. Make a kind of a long story short, my dear aunt, who when she uh, passed away, left a will, and of course there were were four relatives that my siblings, my brother and sister and I, I knew, heard of, but had never seen them in our entire lives at family gatherings or anything. And my brother, sister, and I were raised about, at least for a period of time, we moved all over the place, about a block and a half away from my aunt. So we were basically the only living heirs. Well, one day after my aunt was deceased and the will hadn't been read yet, these four suitors took advantage before my aunt died, nobody knew about this, about uh, you know a year before she died, kind of weaseled their way into her life. And they knew, they knew is from what I'm going to tell you, how, how gutless they realized what they were doing was. Because when my siblings and I went into my aunt's house to look at whatever we were supposed to be looking at according to the will and all of this stuff, 
we noticed that our photographs had been removed from the picture frames and the photographs of these shirt tail relatives were in the picture frames now. <laughs> Is that scurrilous or what? Well, money brings out the worst in people at times. It can also bring out the best. But God wants us again to come into this place of what is an all-consuming aspect of our lives, and he wants us to find freedom. And because he loves us, he doesn't want anything, not just this, but anything to pull us away from our pursuit of him. And because he loves us, his love obligates himself to discipline us. For as the writer of Hebrews says, those whom God loves, he disciplines. Well, last week I mentioned that Jesus spoke on the subject of money more than any other topic in the Bible. The first time I heard that, which was a million years ago, I said, no, there's no way. You mean heaven, hell, sin, salvation, mercy, grace, compassion? Yep, spoke more about money than anything. And I was like, what? Well, I checked it out. It's true. He did. And I suggested last week that it was because money is such, again, this very, very consuming aspect of our lives. Not just, you know, it doesn't just become relevant when we're paying the bills. But you get up in the morning and you say, oh, you know, there's a kind of a little hole starting in the heel of my sock. Do I buy a new pair of socks or just how I wear them till they're falling off my feet? Is it time to upgrade my iPhone? Do we go out for dinner tonight? Do we not go out? If we go out, do we go to fast food? Do we go to a real restaurant? I mean, everything in between. The subject of finances is just ubiquitous. But God loves us. And he knows how all-encompassing money concerns are. And he knows how a lack of or a perceived lack of having enough is burdensome. And it is a life-depriving condition. So he spends a lot of words on giving us his wisdom for all things pertaining to life and godliness, according to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He wants us to have those ultimate intangibles of peace, joy, and contentment as we pursue his purposes on earth. And so, in love, wouldn't a loving person with years of experience and years of success offer practical, everyday, real help in how to successfully conquer a situation? And of course, God's that person, and he has written us guidelines, signing the documents in his own blood that we can count on his help with. He's not waiting to jump out around from corners going, ha, gotcha. Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You're going down the wrong path. Yeah, boom. Ah, oh, that feels so good. That's not who God is. He's not out to trick us. He's not out to trip us up. And he's not out to frustrate us. I was thinking about this, and I always try to think of, you know, especially on a you know, kind of a touchy subject and all. Okay, I've got to take people's minds and give them a little, little leisure break here and there throughout this. And I, somehow my mind went to the game of operation. You remember that? It was a long time ago. It's still made, though. Okay? Although there's an updated version, it's kind of dumbed down. <laughs> How can you dumb down that? Remove the funny bone. And if you don't know the game, it's battery operated. There's like a tweezers connected by a wire. And these funny little bones are in this little body that you saw up on the screen there. 
And the, the tweezers, of course, has metal tips on it. And the little bitty spaces where these different things are you have to pick out are also metal lined. So if you go in to remove the wrenched ankle, which looks like a wrench, and your tip of your tweezers happens to hit the side of the game, it goes <clears throat> with this annoying buzz and the nose lights up red. And I remember playing this thing, and, and every time, even though you knew it was going to happen, if you hit it, you're down there, and you maybe have, you have two things out of there, and you're going, and you're going, and, you're going eh, and it startles you every time. And I was thinking, yeah, that's how I think some people think God just waits around for us so he can go, eh, and shock us. But that's not who God is. Well, so I don't know, I don't know I'm not exactly sure how I stumbled on what I'm going to share with you right now, but... An enterprising man who was obviously bored with life decided to take the game operation and make some modifications to it. So he hooked up a bug zapper to the probe, right? And he takes the wires that go to the bug zapper that are triggered by the probe hitting the operation thing, going, eh, right, to his neck. Let's watch and enjoy. I just was watching this over and over again. And what's really funny but illustrative is that he says, that really hurt, and then he proceeds to do it again and again several other times. And I'm like, my goodness, what an illustration of who we are. We make these ungodly or godless choices in life and because God loves us, he disciplines us, and we go, oh, man, oh, that was stupid, that was dumb, oh, I'll never do that again. And we turn around and we do it right again, and we go, oh, that hurts. And we go back and we do it again and again and again. God wants better for us. So as I proceed in this series, I want to stress again two things. For your sakes, and I mean that, please commit to yourself that if you missed the message last week, you will listen to it at our website. You can cut us, burn a CD, make an MP3, put it on your phone, whatever you want to do. And if you miss any segments of this series, that you will commit to listening to it. Secondly, remember that the point of all this is that God really does love you and me. And he cares about this kind of stuff of life and all of the challenges that we face along the way. So the first thing we need to do, and we started this again last week, is we need to start with the proper handling of God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture, not all scripture in the New Testament, but all scripture, meaning the Old and the New Testaments, is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness which means we cannot just willy-nilly write something off as irrelevant simply because it finds its origin in the Old Testament. It is true that not everything in the Old Testament is intact today. But hear this, certainly. We have to be certain that we allow the Scriptures determine that for us and not our own whims or changing mores. 
You want one example because it comes up routinely by they, them, and those. Oh, yeah, you're Christians. You, you pick and choose what you're going to do and what you don't do. You know, well, what about all the dietary rules of the Old Testament? You know, you haven't followed those. Well, the dietary rules were rescinded in Acts chapter 10 and 11 categorically. And that's what I mean by allowing Scripture to tell us what does not apply to us today. Well, Jesus, that is God incarnate, quoted from the Old Testament. I mean, he was there living before the New Testament had been written. So when he quoted from the Bible, he was quoting the Old Testament. He taught from it. In fact, he said that the whole Bible, which again for him was the Old Testament, was all about him. And then gospel writer John, years later, writes in John 5, Jesus saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me, but you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And in the original Greek, those two are explicit. The one is zoen ionon, meaning life eternal. We're talking about the great by and by. We're talking about heaven. But the other one is about zoe, just life here on this world and all that that means, the good, bad, and the ugly. And Jesus, it's, it's like he says, you study the Bible for heaven's sake, but you don't come to me for your sake. And the Christian life isn't just kind of biding our time here and holding on you know, with, with clenched teeth and gritted uh, fingertips, waiting for heaven and just kind of getting this life done with. Jesus says in John 10 that I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. So most people, I think, have some understanding of this idea of making a donation to charity. And so that benign concept has been adopted by the majority of of Christians that it's a nice thing to make a donation to one's church. And so their thinking becomes, yeah, you know, you go to church, you have to put something in the plate. Well, we don't even pass a plate here. We stopped that. I've been here 27 years. We stopped that about 26 and a half years ago, I think, precisely because the offering to God in worship is to be done between you and him. And it's nobody else's business. And so many Christians visit their church and they grab a bill out of their wallet or out of their purse under compulsion. And then they nearly pass out when they realize that the bill that they have is a $20 bill and they put it in the plate. Ah! And they quickly seek to right that wrong. Now, I don't know this personally, but I have heard stories from colleagues where an individual only had, I don't know what the particular bill was in his pocket, and so the plate came by and he put the bill in and he started making change out of the plate. (laughs) That whole mindset is off. And what that kind of offering smells like is an obligatory guilt offering than a free will offering of worship. And as Paul writes to the Corinthians in his second letter, God loves a cheerful giver. So what God has in mind is that his church takes financial responsibility for seeing that his kingdom work, that his mission to the world is underwritten by his people. Now, typically when honest questions arise concerning this topic of giving, 
they often tend to pretty quickly revolve around the practical consideration of how much. How much is appropriate? How much is enough? How much will it take to keep God off my back? Now, that's not said. But in conversations, I assure you, that's sometimes the attitudes that people have. And this is typically answered without benefit of a comprehensive exegesis, that means pulling out of Scripture what is there, of God's Word, His total counsel, who promises that He gives us, again, Second Peter 1.3, all things pertaining to life and godliness. God is concerned about these down-to-earth, nitty-gritty realities. And so the answers as to how much a Christian should give to the church is often answered with some varying iterations of something like this. Well, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you give for the right reasons, and that just feels so good. Or, well, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you give with a right heart or attitude. Now, those answers are, are not incorrect As far as they go, but they don't go very far. Likeable though they may be, they are not biblical answers. The first record we have of giving, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not, goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Let's take a look at it if you have your Bibles. Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. Then after Abram's return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, first time he's introduced, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a, high, he was a priest of God Most High. And he, Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. This is where the idea of a tithe, which means 10% or a tenth, originates way back in the book of Genesis. Now, I have to say something about Melchizedek. It's complex and a bit complicated. And I wrote a thesis on it from Hebrews chapter 7, which is never good because you feel like it's a hobby horse and you just want to go in 10 different directions. So I'm going to do better at the advice of my recorder than I did first service, I hope. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 10. Now observe how great this man was, referring to Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, again referring to Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser, meaning Abraham, is blessed by the greater meaning Melchizedek. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, also paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Melchizedek, if you were around when I did teach through the entire book of Hebrews, 
Melchizedek, in my estimation, and many other good theologians, but not everyone, believes that he can only be a pre-incarnate presentation of Jesus thousands of years before Jesus has his incarnation at Christmas. Now, this shouldn't astound anybody. Jesus didn't come into being at Christmas time. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God. They are eternal without beginning or end. And if we read more in the book of Hebrews, it says of Melchizedek that he is without genealogy, which is unthinkable in the Jewish culture. To not have genealogy means you don't exist, quite literally. So that's unthinkable, but it goes on even clearer, and it says he is without beginning of days or end of life. Well, who can qualify for that? No human being. If he doesn't have beginning of days or end of life, he's eternal and without mother and without father. Boom! So Melchizedek comes along way back in Genesis. Abraham, who is the patriarch of patriarchs, they don't get any bigger than that. In Romans chapter 4, Paul talks about him as being basically the father of faith. He is repeated in Hebrews chapter 11 again as being this dynamic, you know, monumental man of faith. And yet Abraham, being the greatest, if you will, of humans that we could think of, Abraham tithed to this guy Melchizedek, who wasn't just a guy, though, and he wasn't just a high priest of God, but he was the priest. And it's interesting that Jesus also holds the priestly state, as we find out in the New Testament. Meaning, Abraham was tithing to God Almighty, the first instance of the tithe, and it was a requirement. And it has not been rescinded unlike the dietary laws and other things throughout the Old Testament that are subsequently rescinded because the scriptures tell us that the tithe was never rescinded from Genesis forward. So the tithe is first presented in Genesis and again never rescinded. Now, what was the tithe to be used for? There's absolute uh, uh, trade over, if you will, to today. In Numbers 18, we're still way back in the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. We're told what the tithe is to be used for. To the sons of Levi, who was from whom the, the tribe from whom the priesthood came out of, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform in the service of the tent of meeting. The tithes of God's people were expressly to be used for the support of priests who are today pastors slash priests. They're one in the same, biblically, and in the service of the temple, now in a Christian theme, slash the church. So God has been rather precise on the question of how much and to whom and for what in particular. But that being said, we cannot divorce and we must not divorce an answer, this answer rather, from the greater theological answer because to do that is to narrow the whole teaching on money and finances to what seems like just a, a, a nasty kind of legalism. It's something we have to do with our teeth gritted and to bear it because if we don't get it, you know, God's going to get it one way or another. But oh my goodness. God loves you and me. 
And because he loves you and me, he has given us instructions on how to live well. Please heed that and know that I mean it. So now let's go to the little book of Haggai in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, you want to find it. It's only two chapters, so it's kind of be tricky to find. So go to the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're on Matthew, you're going to take a left-hand turn in your Bible and just go three books, not blocks, three books, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and you'll find Haggai. All right. Now, as we come to the book of Haggai, the little book of Haggai, yes, we have to acknowledge, I acknowledge that it was to a particular people at a particular time in history. But God does not waste space in what he decides to record. And so there is a reason why he recorded the particular goings-ons at the time of Haggai so that it's remembered throughout the ages. So while it is a time-sensitive concern, historically speaking, it demonstrates a timeless principle. And it's that timeless principle that we want to take advantage of and extract. So let's begin with the setup in Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord. This is from God. He uses Haggai as his avenue to get it to his people. The Lord says... The people say the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, let me give you the background so that makes any kind of sense at all. God's people were taken into captivity in Babylon for a period of seven, 70 years. Another point in the low life of uh, or the low lights of uh, God's people's lives. And so they were transported to Babylon as discipline. And they were there for a period of 70 years. But when Cyrus came and he conquered Babylon, they went through several kings in that 70-year period, Cyrus gave the Jews permission to go back to their home in Jerusalem. But 70 years is a long time to maintain a vibrant faith when you are surrounded by a totally different culture with totally different mores and values and totally different systems of worship and small g gods. And there were also many appealing distractions in Babylon, not the least of which were an abundance of affluence and prosperity. Meaning what? Meaning that when the Jews were given their permi- the freedom to go back to their homeland in Jerusalem, not all of God's people were eager to return to their homeland. It would be quite a lifestyle change to do so. And it would be negative, or at least that's what they figured. And so the ones most likely to remain in Babylon were the most prosperous, leaving the poorer of God's children to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God because God had commanded that earlier. So as we come to Haggai chapter 1, God's people now have been home in Jerusalem for 15 years. And guess what hasn't happened? And guess what isn't happening? The temple is still sitting there just as it was before the uh, importation to Babylon 70, 85 years prior and unchanged. They hadn't done a thing to obey God in rebuilding the temple. 
verses 3 through 6 in Haggai 1. So the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet again, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, referring to his temple, lies desolate? Paneled houses there is a unique uh, Hebraic way of saying pretty plush, lavish domiciles. Not just hovels, not just the bare necessities of covering, but some pretty luxurious places while God's house lies there desolate. Now, he says, therefore, because of that, here's what the Lord of hosts says. Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. You have sown much, but you harvest little. Tell me if this doesn't ring all kinds of bells. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. It's not an endorsement of drunkenness. It's a way of saying, even if you wanted to, you couldn't. Everything was in short supply. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. Sounds like me in the wintertime here. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Haven't you heard that phrase even today? Probably didn't know that's where it came from. My mom, my dad, they had a different iteration of that. has to do with, oh, money burning a hole in your pocket. So again, is this contemporary to our day? They're working harder, but they're not getting ahead. They're expanding their income-generating endeavors, but they're not getting ahead. Tell me you've never felt like no matter what you do, you just don't get a break. You keep falling behind. So the God who loves them And you and me says, consider your ways. And God means think about this on more than just a financial plane. We're getting behind and the all too common answer is I got to pick up more hours. We're getting behind so I got to take more overtime. I'm going to have to pick up a second job, maybe a third job. Maybe I should buy more scratch tickets. But God says, you're not seeing the big picture. You're dealing only with symptoms and you're completely ignoring the root causes. God, who loves them and you and me, wants them to see that their financial position and their obedience to the God who loves them are absolutely interconnected. It's not like we got this thing called God out there and the religious stuff that we do in life and then there's all the rest of life and boy, some are lucky and some aren't so lucky and some know the right people and you know, woes and all of this. God says, no, they are intimately woven together. My relationship to you as the creator of the universe and your well-being and all that that means. There is cause and effect here established by God himself, which means God has established rules for giving. And he doesn't give rules to be a pain. (laughs) He said to his people coming out of captivity, sports fans, priority number one. It's for you to rebuild my house why because he wants to be a pain no because he's homeless 
Well, come on. Acts chapter 17 says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. This isn't God begging his people for a place to live because he needs it. It is He's pleading with his people because his people need it. See, I'm not following it. We see before Christ's atoning work, the temple was the place where God would visit his people by the supernatural visage of his glory coming down called the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory where it would come and rest on the mercy seat. The people could see God's physical presence in their place of worship there, which was the temple. Meaning what still? You haven't rebuilt my temple. And until you do, I'm not going to be there. And no temple, no presence of God. This isn't for me. It's for you. And God gives them then the solution to their economic woes. It's as if God says, get on board with my plans for you. They are for your good. Verses 8 and 9. So go up to the mountains. Bring wood. Rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. And then a verse that I memorized a half million years ago with my small children. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own luxuriously paneled homes. This is nothing other than divine cause and effect, and God is telling us this. Money woes were not due to misfortune and and unfortunate climatological conditions in an agrarian society. Money woes were not due to poor economy or rotten luck or poor timing or the fact that they just can't catch a break. God says, God says, the God who loves you and me says, I am frustrating your plans. Not because I'm a meanie, but because it's the only way you will get what I know you need and you want. Verse 10 and 11. Therefore, God says, because of you, the sky has withheld its due. This wasn't happenstance. And the earth has withheld its produce. I, God, the creator, the master of the weather, the master of the seed and the harvest and everything in between, I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. That's pretty comprehensive. And he does it not in a mean-spirited, uncaring kind of way, but because he says, I love you and I created you for my purposes. And you are not living my purposes, but your own. And I simply will not let that go because I love you. And a fulfilled, peaceful, contented life 
comes from living it by my instructions with my help and my unlimited power. So what happened? Well, God's people did get their act together. Haggai chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. The leaders, and there's a whole list of names there which I've omitted, the leaders with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord, meaning living the way they were was irreverent. When they finally put God in his rightful place and God's purposes in their proper place, that was called reverence. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people saying, this is God now speaking, I now as opposed to before i am with you declares the lord so the lord listen to what the lord does now when he decides based on all that he said to be on our side so the lord stirred up the spirit of zerubbabel the son of shealtiel governor of judah and the spirit of joshua the son of jehozadak the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people and it includes the leaders at the very beginning of the passage. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Once the people brought their lives in tune with the song that God wanted them singing, God brought supernatural, miraculous empowerment to the culture. Not just to them, but to the whole culture. The Lord stirred up. He stirred up the people to all suddenly care now that they are revering God. He stirred up the leaders to get motivated and to lead in a godly way. God stirred up the communities from the leaders right down to the field hand. And it went beyond just the outworkings of prioritizing their time and money. Because chapter 2 in this short book describes their cleaning up of their lives with the result chapter 2 verse 18 consider from this day onward from the 24th day of the ninth month from the day when the temple of the lord was founded from this day on god says i will now bless you the book ends with the results going even further than the own little spheres of their immediate geography with God blessing even their geopolitical interests. Verse 21-23. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, Listen to what happens when a people truly follow the Lord as he desires, as he deserves. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, not just Jerusalem, but the heavens and the earth. I'm going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses and their riders will go down every one by the sword of another. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. I don't have time to go into it. We're done for today. But that is a direct reference to the coming Messiah, Savior, Lord Jesus, declares the Lord of hosts. Even though this is all about finances and priority and doing things God's ways, 
there are geopolitical consequences, meaning global, multi-kingdom in our, in our vocabulary, multi-country, multi-leader ramifications of a faithful people revering, reverencing God the way he deserves. And in addition to all of that we've talked about about finances today, it also ought to give us a new clue about what the United States of America truly needs. Truly needs. Not little punctuated blips of temporary reprieves. Israel went through that basically through their whole history. They obeyed, things went well, they disobeyed, things went into the John. Things obeyed, they went well, and disobeyed, they went into John. And that's been our country. The problem is, every time we get a reprieve, we seem to, de- seem to descend much lower and lower and lower. This means, first and foremost, the church, God's people, needs to get its act together with the Almighty. And short of it doing that, We will continue to live what we are seeing lived out now every day, only it will get increasingly worse. God loves us. And he's just going, hey, hey, look, here's how to do it and do it well and be successful and get what you're trying to get. We go, that's freaky. No. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, I pray you would absolutely shut up the accuser, the deceiver, the one Lord who would like to take snippets of what I've said or just to drive people's attitudes uh, to different places where they should not be because you intend for this to be a message of liberation and of freedom and of glory and true joy. And Lord God, All too few of your people know the reality of this. So I pray, dear God, work through this series and change lives in a palpable, in a palpable, profound way such that even testimonies would come flowing in. Yep, the Lord meant what he said. Here's how. In your name I pray, amen.